And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. One of my biggest challenges is uh, keeping up with the questions that you have sent me. And uh, I am committed in 2018 to uh, answering way more questions than I have in the past year. Uh, I'm even going to get some help and on some of the very simple questions. I think I'll uh, ask somebody to respond to those, but uh, I'm not going to promise I'll get to them all, but I, I can promise I'll get to more. Uh, for today's podcast, I've got uh, eight uh, questions here that I want to respond to. I'm always hoping that there's some small lesson in each one of these. Uh, certainly, there'll be uh, my hope that my comment will answer the question sufficiently for the person who provided it. But I'm also hoping that there'll be something in each one uh, that will be good for other investors, savers, uh, or people who just are interested in knowing more about the investment process. The first question is an interesting one to me because it's a it's a different um, a different comment on a, on a very common question. And um, what the investor, uh, first he says, uh, with the market up over 300% since 2009, why shouldn't I start putting aside the money I have been dollar cost averaging into my 401k? Uh, with a little patience, I should be able to pick up some bargains. And he finishes with any guidance. Yes, I think I do have some guidance, but it's but it isn't easy because it, I, I understand how people are feeling right now with the market having gone up so far from a point at which it felt like all was lost. Uh, as you may remember in the Early months of 2009, there was a mass exodus from the market. Now, keep in mind, everybody who sold shares uh, sold them to somebody who was buying shares. So it isn't that people had given up on the market. It, in a sense, was that people were willing to make a commitment to the market as long as they could get it at a price they wanted, which was... in. It appeared to be always lower. Well, it's been the opposite side uh, of that coin in the, uh, in the last year, for example, or over a year, because in 20 of the last 21 months, the market's been up. And through the end of November, there were 13 months in a row where the S&P 500 uh, ended up with a gain. So it is easy to assume a correction is coming. And it's also um, hard for a lot of people to continue throwing uh, money at an ever-increasing market thinking, am I wasting my investment? Why shouldn't I just put it aside, wait for the decline, and then put it to work? Wouldn't I be far ahead if I did that, because if I could put money into the market at 20 or 30% less, what does that do 
over a lifetime if it then grows from the lower value to a higher value. Well, all of that is true. What appears to be the problem is developing a strategy that actually will address all of the hurdles that you're going to face. Because with dollar cost averaging, a proven strategy with a diversified portfolio, by the way, there is no question that with a diversified portfolio and the index fund is the ultimate diversified portfolio, that it at least has worked and is highly, highly likely to work in the future. But when we start to monkey with the idea that when the market is down, your constant investment value buys more shares. When the market is up, all that new money buys fewer shares. That that will work out. But of course, that is based on the long-term, the belief that the long-term market will go up. But we also know that from time to time, the market goes down. And over the last hundred years, the average decline in those what they call bear markets, where there's a 20% fall decline in the market, that the average loss is about 30 to 35%. That does not include the reinvestment of dividends, by the way. That's just the index itself. So why not now? And the challenge is, it could be very close. So if you set yourself up, let's say that you did, in fact, quit putting your monthly 401k contribution into equities. And what you do is you put it aside. You don't quit investing. No, that you continue to do. But you put it aside and you, and you make some sort of a promise to yourself that when the market goes down, what, 20%, 25%, 30%, whatever amount you want to build into that promise, that you will then take all of the accumulated money that you've put into a money market fund or a short-term bond fund, and you're going to invest that with the idea that over the long term, you're going to make a substantial amount of money on that. And for somebody in their 20s, that could certainly be true. Now, what could happen is the market could continue to go up while you continue to to accumulate cash. And now you have to make a decision. Is that 20, 25, 30% decline going to be based on a new high that the market might go to, or is it going to be based on the time that you said, this is it, I'm going to now from this very point wait for the market to decline, whatever that amount is. And the problem is for you as an investor is that if you have a trailing buying point so that if the market does go up another 25%, that the decline has to come from that point so that you you could get caught, and it's pretty obvious what could happen, is you say, I'm not going to invest until the market has gone, let's say, from 10,000 to 8,000, and it goes up to 12,000, and then it comes back to 9,000, but never 
goes back down to 8,000. That's possible. In the meantime, you're accumulating forever money waiting for this magic point in time. On the other hand, if you have a trailing buying point and the market goes from 10,000 to, let's say, to 12,000, and you're waiting for a 20% decline from there, or wait a minute, let's say it goes from, for the sake of discussion here, 10,000 to 15,000, and now your trailing stop would put you in at $12,000, which means you just decided to stop investing at 10,000 and you missed you, you missed the opportunity for a 20% increase rather than saving yourself money and making more money in the long run, you're going to end up making less. Now, I don't know how it's going to work out because I don't know what the market's going to do. Nobody does. But I do know this, that dollar cost averaging has worked in the past. And in a broadly enough diversified portfolio, and with enough time on your side, it has always worked. Now, that does not face one legitimate risk that we take as investors, and that is we save and save and invest and invest, and we take risk and more risk. We stay in equities. And in fact, I know investors who have never put a penny in bonds. And they've got tons of money now because they've done that, but they still carry the risk that it could all collapse and go down 70-80%. Because that happens too. Not often, but it does happen. It certainly happened to people in the technology uh, sector of the market back from 2000 through 2002. So what's a person to do? We know that dollar cost averaging works. We know that buy and hold has worked. So now we have a mechanical way to get into the market and a mechanical way to stay in the market. But what about if you really just, you can't take it anymore? The old I see, I can't stand it anymore strategy, I-C-S-I-A. And you just can't throw money into something that you know is so, so grossly overpriced. And you could feel that way. Who knows? A lot of you believe, and and, and not improperly, that you buy on the rumor and sell on the fact. So tons of people evidently have been buying on the idea that this new, whatever the new tax law may be, we don't know that yet, but you got a sense for it. Corporations are going to make a lot more money. That's what it looks like is going to happen. And people are, 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 are investing their money based on corporations making more money. But is it possible the market has already discounted that now? And that when the tax is law, and a lot of people will say, oh, oh now that I know what's going on, I can put money in the market. You know, that could be the peak for quite a while. Uh, that happens. Okay, so what could you do? 
if you want to override your dollar cost averaging strategy. Well, you you could put the money aside, uh, all of it, or you could compromise. I've compromised in the way I've invested. I'm half buy and hold and half timing. I've compromised in the in in in, in uh, response to my risk tolerance. I'm half in stocks and half in bonds. So I have compromised um, what a lot of you might believe in. Uh, I had lunch with a friend yesterday who said, "How could you take so much risk uh, in, uh, in in having market timing in your portfolio?" Well, it's because I believe something totally different than my friend. So a compromise is possible. What could the compromise be in the case of dollar cost averaging and you wanting to, in essence, market time? Well, how about this? You could continue to dollar cost average, but only with half of your new contributions and put the other half into short-term fixed income or a money market fund and wait for whatever your mechanical formula is as to when you're going to invest that accumulated cash. So that's a possibility. So that would keep you on track with part of your money, with the belief in dollar cost averaging, but also feed the emotions or the feelings or the beliefs that the market is way overvalued. To make life even more complex, If you really believed the market was at a peak and it was going to decline substantially, remember from 2000 through 2009, there were two declines of over 50%. So if you've lived through that, it's easy to believe that losing 50% is not unusual. Now, it had been, what, since the 1973-74 period, that the, that the that the prior 50% decline happened, so there was a lot of time in between 1973 and 4 and that 2000-2002 bear market. There is no question from everything I know about investing that applying any kind of market timing that isn't purely mechanical is probably the toughest of all strategies to offer any legitimate advice. Number two, question number two. Uh, Evidently from a young investor, because he starts, I recently graduated from college. I have followed your advice in putting together your recommended portfolio in my 401k at Microsoft. By the way, Microsoft is one of the over 100 companies whose uh, 401k offerings we've evaluated and and, uh, uh, tried to give help, whether you're conservative, moderate, or aggressive. Hope you'll check those out if you work with uh, uh, one of the large companies, including Google and and, uh, uh, the oil companies, the airlines, uh, uh, IBM, etc., He goes on, you don't appear to give any advice on when to consider buying a home. What should we do? Both my wife and I are working at high-tech jobs and uh, are investing in our 401ks. Uh, 
Then he says something that makes this a, a difficult piece of advice. We are not maxing out our contributions, but at least making enough to get the company match. Smart. I mean, that's what we always want young investors to do first. Any suggestions about when it makes sense to buy a home? Well, um, that if you know how long you're likely to stay, uh, and I'm going to assume you're in the Pacific Northwest, but doesn't mean you have to be, um, it, 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 it is, um, it, it's commonly the rule of thumb is don't buy a house unless you know you're going to live in it for at least five years. And um, so that would be the starting point. Uh, I think you would find it helpful if you went to bankrate.com. They have a mortgage calculator there, and that mortgage calculator takes you through a series of uh, multiple-choice Q&A, and and I think will help you consider not only whether it makes sense to buy a house, um, but um, it also... Um, will give you an idea of how much of a house you could buy. Now, when I was an advisor, I always encouraged when it was when young people could afford a house. I always encouraged them to to stretch and and buy the house with the, the likely family that you're going to have. Again, this assumes you're buying in a location where you plan to stay but that if you stretch yourself for that first house, um, the, the, the first thing that's going to happen is you will hopefully stay in that house. So instead of having to go through a purchase, a sale, and another purchase, that you only have to pay all those commissions basically one time for a very long time. Uh, that will likely maximize your bottom line. Now, it still begs the question, of should you be buying a house when you haven't maxed out your 401k plan? Uh, I could make the case that historically uh, the inflationary rate, of the, the, which is the biggest impact on the price of houses, that uh, that has not been uh, growing at the rate of what you would likely expect to get in a 401k plan, particularly if you're in, in an all-equities position for the first uh, 15 or 20 years of, of your investing. So as a just in terms of the bottom line, how much money will you have, and likely how, how early could you retire, you're probably gonna, going to be ahead if you max out that 401k, uh, taking advantage of all those tax breaks uh, and rent. But uh, certainly, uh, we always know what we should have done. And if uh, home prices just continue to skyrocket, as they have uh, certainly here in the Pacific Northwest, um, it may be that you would have done better in the stock market But that really, at least historically, is not likely. Number three, and this this question came from somebody that I've uh, 
when I read their email to me, I thought, boy, these people, uh, I better give them a phone call uh, and, and maybe see if I can't give them a gentle push in the right direction because uh, uh, I, did, I, I was concerned they could get into the wrong hands. And, uh, and I was also so concerned that, that um, they really needed as much money as they had to invest at their age they really needed to do everything to make sure they maximized their return within their risk tolerance. And what I recommended to them was that they get a hold of, a, of an hourly advisor that could sit with them and wouldn't take very many hours and get them headed in the right direction. So they wrote, we met with a Garrett financial planner, and that's the one that there's a the GarrettPlanningNetwork.com. They have advisors all over the country who, by contract with the Garrett organization, have to offer an hourly-based um, investment advice. Now, they may have some reason why they don't want to work with you, just like you may have a reason why you don't want to work with them, but they have to, as part of their practice, offer hourly help and most of them also, but not all of them, but most of them offer uh, asset-based investment advice uh, along with uh, the choice of the hourly. But they met with a, grant, a Garrett financial planner, uh, and it, it is just what we needed, and that's music to my ears. Uh, he helped my wife and I work through a lot of financial and family issues, we have finalized our strategies, so we are ready to move forward. We presently have investments at Vanguard and Fidelity. We will probably move most, if not all, funds to a Vanguard portfolio, as we have, so we have all our holdings in one place. We think that's a smart thing to do as we are getting older and need to simplify. We have enjoyed working with the Garrett Planner, but he does not do the grunt work of buying and selling the Fidelity and Vanguard funds. Should we enlist Vanguard to help us make the moves, as well as figuring out when it's time to rebalance in the future? Now, there were so many important considerations here. Number one, um, I think it is uh, wonderful when a couple, uh, particularly, and I happen to know in this particular case, uh, one is focused on the investing process uh, and the other is not. And that is a very typical. I mean, my wife has an MBA from Berkeley. She's a very smart lady and knows the world of finance. But I'm the one with the interest in the investment uh, part of our life, uh, she does not find that as fascinating as I do. So you can be smart. It's no question she's smarter than I, by the way. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that just because you're smart that that's going to turn you into a great investor. Sometimes there has to be some sort of a motivation to, to want to deal with all that, those emotions of of managing your own money. It's it's not always easy for people. So I'm glad to have this couple, particularly for the one who's not 
the financial expert in the family, because if, for example, I predeceased my wife, which I, I, I'm slightly older than she, and the odds are I will predecease her, I love it that I have a, we have a financial advisor who is right there, uh, ready to to do the the, the heavy lifting with my wife, um, uh, as opposed to it's much obviously much easier to deal with me than uh, because I'm more knowledgeable. But it, that surviving spouse oftentimes needs a trusted partner to take care of this part of their life. So I'm glad that this couple has found a local advisor that uh, that will be able to help them over the years. Now, should they, and, and I might mention, it is not totally uh, out of character for a, a Garrett planner uh, to basically do all of the investment advice after carefully looking at all the moving parts of your life and then telling you what you should do and then expecting that you're going to do that. But I can tell you that if you're willing to pay them by the hour, almost all of them will sit there and fill out paperwork for you or make the phone calls that you have to uh, to get this stuff rolling. I, I know recently for a friend of ours, I got on the phone with her sitting next to me and I called Vanguard and I told the Vanguard person that I knew would be personally taking care of this person as as she moved forward. I did all that early. It was probably a 15-minute conversation, and I passed the phone to my friend, and I said, okay, from here on, you've got somebody at Vanguard to work with, and you can take it from here. And I believe that she will be able to do that. But I also think that it's not a mistake to keep that planner in the loop. I don't mean going back through the whole, you know, the, the, the hours of work that they might have put into putting together that, that portfolio recommendation for the couple, but it may be much more cost-effective to once a year go in and work for an hour or two with the planner rather than hiring Vanguard and their personal advisory service that costs three-tenths of one percent a year, um, I think it, you, you will find that it could be cheaper, uh, depending on the size of your portfolio, to simply pay for a couple of hours of work to, do the, you know, to talk about the rebalancing and figure that out on an annual basis. It's not worth paying three-tenths of one percent to simply take care of the rebalancing. Uh, plus, you're going to continue getting advice from the person who established your asset allocation in the first place, because I can tell you from my experience, the advice you're going to get in terms of asset allocation at Vanguard is going to be different from what you're likely to get from the Garrett planner. At Vanguard, they keep it super, super simple. But my belief is in that process of keeping it super simple, uh, there's a lot of money left on the table that without taking any more risk, that investor should have received in terms of the uh, premium for the risk that they took. Now, in terms of getting the money into Vanguard and putting it to work, when you know 
from your planner exactly what funds they want you to go in to, and all you're trying to do is to get the money out of, like in this particular case, it was Fidelity to move it to Vanguard. Vanguard has a large crew of people whose only function is to literally help people get the money from Fidelity over to Vanguard, whether that's taxable accounts or or tax-deferred accounts, they will help you do that. So um, I, I think uh, that this is a couple that uh, when I think ab- ab- about the anxieties they were having when the, I had the first conversation with them, and this is not something I do very often, but uh, uh, but I just, from their email they sent me, I felt like it was something I wanted to get involved in because I was not going to be recommending what they put their money into. I was simply going to recommend where I thought they could get good advice. And and I'm not on the payroll of Garrett, by the way, but if you do go to GarrettPlanningNetwork.com, and you'll see there's a big map there, and you can find an advisor, uh, hopefully in your area, uh, that you could speak with, and they'll give you a free consultation just to get to know each other. Well, here's in question number four. Uh, somebody who wants to make the investment process very, very simple and very, very profitable, which is uh, it's always an interesting uh, combination because I have found that the people who want this process to be very, very simple uh, are often not the greatest risk takers. But let me tell you what this, uh, this reader or listener wants to know. To get the best long-term return, wouldn't it make better sense to simply select the highest performing asset class of the last 20 years and keep things simple instead of diversifying into seven or eight different asset classes. I know that all of them move at different times, but it's the long term that matters. Now, obviously, he understands the idea of putting together asset classes that don't move up and down together, but... Uh, he's willing to ignore the, in essence, the risk reduction by having these non-correlated asset classes uh, with the willingness to take the higher risk of having everything in one asset class in the hopes that it will continue to be the best asset class. And guess what that would probably be if you looked at almost every 20-year period? It would be small cap value. Uh, That is certainly the case when you go out 40 years. I mean, the longer you go, the higher the probability based on the past that small cap value is the big winner. Um, I have have strong feelings, you you know that, about small cap value and its likely long-term return. Uh, I I also worry for investors that you'll go through a period of time 
uh, when small cap value really underperforms, and that's going to happen. In fact, I'll be talking about that in next week's podcast. But uh, there, there is the possibility. Let me just uh, suggest a compromise position. Uh, one could possibly put most, uh, let's say, let's say half of their long-term commitment into small cap value, and put the other half into a broadly diversified portfolio. Now, I know I've just complicated your life uh, compared to putting it all in small cap, but let's just pretend for a second that somebody is going to put aside uh, $5,000 a year over 40 years, and uh, going to put $2,500 of that five into small cap value. Now, what do we know about small cap value? And as I said before, if you listen to uh, uh, next week's podcast, you'll know a lot more about small cap value, I think, I hope. But let's say it compounds at 12%. That's not an impossibility. We do know that the average 40-year return of that asset class, without fees, by the way, uh, has been over 16%. So it's possible that you could get 12. But that $2,500 a year would grow to $1.9 million. At 13%, $2.5 million. At 14%, $3.3 million. Now, remember I said that the average 40-year return going back to 1928 and looking at every 40-year period, uh, that the uh, average was over 16, and the high, by the way, was 19. So uh, that is possible. Uh, And uh, if you didn't, you wanted to keep it relatively simple, what you could do, is you could diversify your portfolio to be half in small cap value and the other half in large cap value. Now, large cap value is not made as much as small cap, but it has still been significantly more than the S&P 500. And if you wanted to you wanted to take one more step, and I've written an article, and in fact, if you look at the fine-tuning tables, under best advice, I have fine-tuning tables that are based on an all-value portfolio. Big, small, U.S. international, even a small slice of, uh, of emerging market value. I think that I would feel, if, if I were your advisor and I knew you wanted to let it all hang out with one asset class, I would try to convince you that that the most aggressive stance on the long term would be all value, because then you'll have thousands of companies in your portfolio. Number five, there are a lot of index funds and ETFs with similar strategies, but different numbers of stocks. Some funds contain 100 stocks, others contain 2,000 or more. How many stocks make a fund or ETF diversified? Uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, it's, uh, 
my answer would have been a little different a year ago after reading uh, Dr. Bessenbinder's study entitled Do Stocks Outperform U.S. Treasury Bills? Um, my belief is you, you want to have the, the uh, I'm assuming the, that the expense ratio uh, is the same. I'm assuming that the average size company is the same. Given that those two are similar, I would now pick the the fund or ETF within, with the largest number of companies. Now, first of all, let's talk about an earlier academic view of how many companies do you need. Uh, the academics would say that in order to virtually eliminate the, the risk or the impact of one company failing, that if you go out to 100 companies, so let's say you wanted to have a, uh, a portfolio that included small cap values and uh, large cap value and large cap growth and small cap growth, etc., about both U.S. and international, in theory, probably they would like you to have at least 100 companies in each of those asset classes. Now, what does Dr. Bessenbinder say that makes me feel differently today? He actually makes the case and I'm buying into it, okay? I'm saying I think that what he, uh, their studies have concluded makes sense. That the, the likely return, long-term return, is going to be higher if you have more stocks in the portfolio in whatever particular asset class you're investing in. And the reason they say that is because it turns out that looking at the stock market back to 1926 and, and, and following every public uh, company from the point it became public until it either uh, merged or it failed or up and st- or it stayed what it is until now, uh, that if you look at all those companies, it was only four, less than 4% of those companies that made the big difference in your return. Because if you look at the other 96% of the companies, it turns out their average return was T-bill rates. It's the 4% approximately that created the jump from T-bill rates up to the famous 10% that people talk about. Now that's a big deal. Because what, what, what he concludes is that if it's only a handful of companies, you want to make darn sure you get those companies in your portfolio. Because if you don't, there is a, a probability you're going to be closer to T-bill rates than you are going to be to that market return that will probably create enough growth for you to reach your goals. So I would look for the one, again, assuming uh, similar expenses, similar size, uh, similar book-to-market, and go for the one that has the largest number of securities. I almost 
decided against this question because I uh, I wasn't sure how uh, much interest it would be to the to most of you. But then I I thought, well, maybe there's a discussion behind this question and the in the, the answer that uh, you might find of interest. But the question says, I'm reading your great article. I like that. Anytime they, they say one of my articles are great, I love that, on the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Uh, in fact, if I could just insert here, that's probably of all the articles that I've written, uh, it's the one that's had the most, I've gotten the most feedback from. But anyway, The reader says, I just wanted to confirm as I'll be using a money manager that you've subtracted all returns by 1%. And uh, yes, in that study, uh, we did take 1% uh, fee off of those results. And that is also true of the fine-tuning tables that... uh, uh, that are uh, on the uh, site. In fact, if you haven't read the ultimate buy and hold strategy, go to paulmerriman.com, uh, click on best advice, and as you scroll down, you'll see the ultimate buy and hold strategy, and then you'll see fine tuning your asset allocation. Uh, those two articles together, I think, are pretty powerful. But yes, we did include. Uh, the 1% management fee. Now, there are a couple of things that are important. Uh, I think in that question, there is some implication that what you see in the ultimate buy and hold strategy, because it shows returns from 1970 through 2016. So you might conclude those are real. Well, they are real, but they're hypothetical because there's no way we can ever go back and buy those years. What we do know is those years, um, in that study, it's all equities. So uh, you could say that is a legitimate return given all the different asset classes that are there, including emerging markets and international small cap value and REITs and small cap U.S. value. Anyway, tons of different asset classes. Now, not all those asset classes were available over that entire period. So, what you don't know is what would have happened to those asset classes that didn't start until the early 70s or the early 80s. But I don't think it's an unfair representation that as you add small, as you add value, that over the long term, you make a higher rate of return. Now, here's the the potential weakness in that study, even with the 1% management fee taken off the top. Those returns are all based on the way that DFA, dimensional funds, the way they build their portfolios. If you were to use Vanguard instead You would not expect that high a rate of return because Vanguard builds their portfolios in a a different way. Uh, They tend to be larger companies on average, regardless of whether you're talking large cap or small cap. 
and they tend to be more value-oriented at DFA. So we would expect the returns using Vanguard after a management fee, I'm talking an investment manager, would be lower. But it's possible that uh, if you use DFA and you pay uh, a 1% management fee, that the advantage to DFA becomes much smaller uh, than without a management fee. So always the assumptions that we make in order to try to make a point with an article or with a table uh, oftentimes, you've got to be careful about assuming that that's the way the future will be. Number seven, uh, this investor says, I have been very nervous for some time about the bond market. Stocks, of course, have had an incredible run-up, and bonds are normally a great insurance for someone like me that is near retirement. I fear, though, that bonds perhaps may be too expensive. In a scenario where inflation decides to rear its ugly head, I'm concerned there could be a flight out of both stocks and bonds. I've decided I sleep much better keeping just stocks and the stable value fund in my 401k. Are you comfortable with stable value funds instead of bond funds? Well, yes, I am comfortable with stable value funds rather than bond funds because we often use stable value funds when they're in a 401k. We hope, of course, that we'll have access to some bond funds beyond just the stable value, but in some 401ks, that's all we have available. Now, I'm going to make sure that, that our listeners understand how a stable value fund works. It's, it's an insurance product. And yes, there is a guarantee. But that guarantee is not a guarantee from the government. It's a guarantee from the insurance company to pay a certain rate of interest. They're called Guaranteed Interest Contracts. As the name Stable uh, suggests, uh, the price stays the same. So it would be similar to a money market fund in that regard, but it would pay, or they do pay, interest rates that are uh, higher than money market funds. In fact, they typically are higher than short-term bond funds. So uh, it's, it's a great premium for uh, an instrument that doesn't have any volatility. The only point at which one is concerned is when the insurance company can't meet its obligation uh, and, 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 and fulfill the guarantee. And from time to time, that does happen. In a catastrophic event, I'm talking about now... Uh, in our economy and the stock market collapses and, and we go through a terrible period of time where businesses do fail. Um, let's think of it more like a depression than a recession. You, are, uh, you have the, some probability of the insurance companies not able to, to, to meet their obligation. And of course, when you do have the meltdown, 
you don't get the advantage that is typically experienced by government bonds because like in 2008 when you had the rush uh, out of stocks and in, and out of corporate bonds but into government bonds, uh, I know our portfolio that was a combination of short-term and intermediate-term and tips, uh, that was up about 7% in 2008. Uh, you would not expect a, uh, a, a, a stable value fund to be up at all because, remember, it, it doesn't go down and it doesn't go up. It, it is the interest rate that uh, will change uh, from time to time, but you can't, you, you won't see a big increase in, in the value of your stable value fund in a catastrophic event like we had in, in 2008. And finally, number eight. Uh, do you have any real evidence that market timing works? And what are the risks of market timing compared to buy and hold? Uh, actually, that was part of a m much longer uh, question, but that's basically what the, uh, the writer was uh, interested in, uh, uh, in finding out. Well, first of all, what's, what's important to understand is that if you have an actively managed fund or an index fund that replicates or, or uses the S&P 500, either the index or companies out of the S&P 500, you would expect that the returns would be very similar. Now, the average actively managed fund may make one or in some asset classes 2% less per year, but you wouldn't expect there to be a huge difference between uh, all of these S&P 500-like portfolios. On the other hand, if somebody is market timing the S&P 500, there are so many different market timing systems that that, that one can't know uh, whether you would make more than the S&P 500 with timing or consider considerably less than the S&P 500 because it's certainly possible that a market timer could have you out of the market at a point when the market makes a very quick, big move to the upside. So the range of returns with market timing can be very large. And the other thing about market timing that uh, you have to ask is, what do you mean by having it work? Uh, did it work in 1987 when the market collapsed and we had our clients totally out of the market in money market funds for about a month prior to the collapse and after the collapse. And yes, that year, that certainly did work. In fact, uh, the Holbert Financial Digest was actually tracking us, and we had uh, strategies that were up over 50% in 1987. On the other hand, the following year, <laughs> we had strategies that trailed the market by a lot because we were slow to get back in the market. The sell-off was so big 
um, and so radical that it, it, it took some time to get back in, which means you leave a lot of money on the table from the bottom of the market. So one of the risks of market timing is that uh, it will underperform the good times. Uh, trend following, simple mechanical trend following systems uh, tend to do better in the bad times. Doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to do better because even in a declining market, you could get whipsawed in and out several times and still lose some money. In fact, in, uh, in 2008, uh, the, the Merriman timing accounts on all equity portfolios uh, were down about 15%. Now, that's compared to the market down between 35 and 40%. So did timing work? Well, it did work to the extent that it protected the investor against the huge decline. Did it work for the investor who thought that uh, the, uh, the timing system would make you money in a year that other people on a buy and hold lost money? Well, you could say it failed if it, if it still lost some money, but relatively, I would say that timing had a good year in 2008. The problem with market timing is that the demands are so counterintuitive from what, from what an investor wants. An investor wants to make lots of money when the market's going up. And as I said before, market timing tends to underperform on the upside. And you're going to have times when you'll have many losing trades in a row. Could be three, four, five trades in a row that are losing trades. And that's very unsettling. You see, with a buy and hold, let's say you buy in 2000, and you hold until 2016, well, you went through a couple of times with equities where you were down over 50%. And so that was bad. But at the end of the period from 2000 to 2016, uh, you you were successful as a buy-in holder. If you didn't panic, you made money. Now, you might have made more with timing. In some cases, I'm sure some timing systems did and others didn't. But the bottom line is we know that buy and hold works over the long term. I'll tell you where market timing will perform what people like myself, because I have part of my portfolio with timing. Here's what it's there to do. It is possible in my future, I'm 74 years old, let's say I live another 15, 20 years, it is not impossible that we will have a huge meltdown in the market. I suspect that's going to happen to everybody who's an investor from their early 20s, as I was, and they make it through a long, a long life, they're going to have to live through some catastrophic events. That's just the nature of the process. And I want, for half of my portfolio, some sort of an exit strategy. 
So I can't tell you whether market timing is going to work. It may be there'll be no reason for the rest of my life to have a defensive strategy in place. So it's a peace of mind uh, thing for me. But I know lots of buy and holders that have just as great a peace of mind as I do. They just do it in a way that's comfortable for them. So I hope some of these questions uh, are of value and uh, that you'll share these with friends that you think might uh, uh, have some interest in these topics. And um, don't, don't miss next week because it's going to be all about small cap value. Thank you for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.